Good evening. I'm Anna Halligan, and this is the Ecology Hour. In honor of the atmospheric river that swept through on Monday night or early Tuesday morning, I'm going to share an interview I recorded a few years ago with two local fisheries biologists who have surveyed and studied salmon on the Mendocino Coast, Dave Wright, who formerly worked with the Nature Conservancy, and Elizabeth Mackey, a former colleague of mine with Child Unlimited. Before I turn to the interview, I want to take a moment just to update everyone on this year's salmon run. Adult salmon didn't start entering coastal streams until mid-December. December rain elevated the streams to allow some upstream migration and spawning, but flow only reached about a tenth of the size that allows for extensive adult distribution. So recent conditions in the streams have generally been low, cold and clear. We've seen some signs of coho spawning as well as groups of fresh individuals holding in lower reaches of the river and many streams where coho are typically found spawning. There's been no sign of them yet. So hopefully um, most of the coho spawning in this region will occur over the next few weeks with all of this additional rain which improves opportunities for the salmon to move upstream. To date There's a total of 18 coho salmon that have been counted at a monitoring location on the South Fork Noyo River. Um, California Fish and Wildlife monitors adult salmon runs annually at life cycle monitoring stations. They count the adult salmon moving upstream, and then based on the numbers they collect at any given monitoring station, they can estimate what the total size of the salmon run is. There is a great website hosted by the Nature Conservancy called State of the Salmon that shows some of this data for rivers around California and locally, including rivers like Big River, Noyo River, Ten Mile River, and the Navarro. For example, if you look at the Noyo River totals from the winter of 2020-2021, the population estimate for coho salmon was about 1,541 adults, and that is 39% of its recovery target, so less than half. The recovery target for coho salmon in the Noyo River is about 4,000 adults. And when we look at steelhead, the numbers were lower. It's uh, 820 adult steelhead were observed or estimated And that's about 25% below its recovery target. But it's important to remember that um, the data from this year is preliminary, and so it's subject to a lot of analysis. And the data for previous years, um, you know, there's a lot of variation in salmon returns annually due to weather conditions. And there's even variation in the types of data that we can get from each species. Uh, For example, steelhead are just a lot harder to monitor than coho salmon are. Farther inland on the Eel River at the Potter Valley Project, the season total is 277 adult Chinook salmon and seven adult steelhead. And keep in mind that this is just the beginning of the salmon run this season and that all these numbers, these observations are just the initial counts that we're seeing at these two monitoring stations. Let's turn to the interview that I recorded with fisheries biologists Dave Wright and Elizabeth Mackey 
where they describe their observations monitoring salmon in Mendocino Coastal Streams. Dave, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in studying salmon? Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the thing about walking creeks because uh, I was hired about 25 years ago by one of the local timber companies to walk creeks, and I did that for about five years. I did these surveys called habitat inventory surveys, and basically it was uh, an attempt to get basic information on the streams around here because before that, uh, people didn't know anything about the streams, and that was about in 1995. So since then, I've just kind of worked my way up, and now I'm kind of someone who actually knows something about the fish around here. There are a lot of species of salmon in the Pacific Northwest. Each species seems to have a different name, and it can be a little confusing. Can you tell us what kinds of salmon exist today in coastal Mendocino watersheds? Yeah, uh, we have three species. I mean, there's a number of different species that will come in on a uh, infrequent basis, but the three main species that we deal with are coho, steelhead, and chinook. And I should say that coho is sometimes also called silver salmon, and chinook are also called king salmon. But the two main species that we're dealing with are coho and steelhead. Uh, coho and steelhead are what I call small stream specialists. And if you look at the area between basically Usalt Creek on the north side of Mendocino County and let's say the Gualala or the Garcia on the south, all of those streams are by river standards pretty small. In fact, all of those streams, if you put them all together, their entire drainage area would only be about the same as the Russian. And the Russian is only about a third the size of the eel. So you can see these are small creeks and that's because they drain this small coastal range and the streams themselves are not buffered by snowmelt. And that's why, as we all know, living here that in summer, these creeks practically dry up and in winter they become torrents. And Coho and still had have specifically adapted to those conditions. And that's why Chinook don't really use these creeks. Chinook are big river fish, and they're actually known as ocean-type salmon, which means that they go into these big streams, they spawn, and then the young immediately head out before the streams get too warm to support them. Coho and steelhead, on the other hand, come into these streams deposit their eggs in fish nests called reds, and then they spend a year to 18 months, and in the case of steelhead, maybe up to multiple years in the creek before they, using a term that we use a lot in salmon monitoring, they outmigrate to the ocean. Coho do that for about 18 months, steelhead do that for at least 18 months, and sometimes a lot longer. So you mentioned that in your initial career as a salmon professional, you did a lot of um, habitat surveys. Can you talk a little bit about what habitats salmon and steelhead need and if there's any differences between coho and steelhead and chinook? Well, like I said, uh, chinook like big creeks, and they even, uh, to make their nests, which we call reds, they 
basically dig these um, pits in the gravels to lay the eggs. And Chinook will, are because they're much bigger fish, they're able to push over much bigger rocks and gravels than coho and steelhead. So once again, Chinook aren't that prevalent here, but coho and steelhead are. And coho and steelhead need uh, really good water quality. And by water quality, I mean dissolved oxygen. Uh, they need high levels of oxygen in the water. And they also need lots of cover, not only for uh, to escape predation, but all of those cover features produce food for these fish. So basically, they need a place to hang out throughout the year where they're offered protection, but they're also kind of exposed to the conveyor belt of food that's moving down the stream. What kind of food do salmon eat? Coho and steelhead really like to eat um, terrestrial insects when they hit the water, and we all know that, especially uh, steelhead fishermen that, if, you know, and um, fly fishermen really know that. And I should say, too, one interesting thing about steelhead is that steelhead and rainbow trout are the same fish. They're the same species. And what's really interesting about them is that even fish that are brother and sister, they, they grew up in the same, you know, from the same clutch of eggs. Some of them will elect to become what we call resident fish, and others will become uh, ocean-run fish, which we call anadromous. And it has to do with how they're genetically wired and also the habitat conditions that they're in. So it sounds like salmon occupy habitats in marine environments and in freshwater environments. And then beyond that, they also need specific types of habitats in stream, some for spawning, like riffles that have clean, abundant gravels, uh, pools. And you mentioned that these pools need to have features like logs or boulders that provide cover where fish can you know, hide from predators or escape strong stream flows in the winter. They also, you also mentioned that they need cold water and abundant food. I'm curious on the cold water part of that, what happens to salmon during drought years? Well, for the baby fish that are um, what we call rearing in the stream, basically growing up in the stream, um, summers can be really difficult for fish around here. And that's because these streams, uh, a lot of times, nearly dry up or do dry up in sections. And the fish are exposed to high temperatures, which they don't like. We're at the southern extent of coho's range, not so much steelhead, uh, and their range is de defined by temperature. But also when... Um, these stream systems uh, shrink in summer, the actual habitat available to them uh, gets a lot smaller. So feeding opportunities become less, and so they have less availability for food, and they're stressed by, by high summer temperatures. Are there any other habitats in a uh, river creek system that are important for these species? Yeah, it's... Uh, Great that you mentioned that, Anna. 
I'm working on projects now where we're focusing on estuary habitat, which research has shown is uh, really important for salmon. It's much more than what we thought years ago. Th these fish, a lot of times, will come down during summer and rear there, in other words, live there and feed there. Um, but also, it's critically important for what we call overwinter habitat. And what that means is that if you think about these fish, they're like an inch or two long. They're small fish when they're, when they're juveniles in the creek. And they're coming down these systems to start moving out. Or if they're just living in there through the winter, uh, think about the intensity of the high winter flows here, the power of these streams in winter. I mean, we know that if you live in Fort Bragg and you watch Pudding Creek, it goes from almost nothing in summer to you know a raging torrent in winter. These fish are exposed to those raging torrents and they need places to get out of that high winter flow and places to feed. And this has been a finding that fisheries scientists have really kind of uncovered recently is that the major mortality that occurs in stream with these fish is during that winter rearing period during high winter flows. What we call off-channel habitat, which um, most of us would just consider to be ponded areas that flood during winter and even uh, flood terraces and flood plains are critically important to fish. And not only is it important for them, if you actually stand around and observe flood events down in estuaries and floodplains, you'll see that once the, the flow goes out onto the flood terrace, it slows down. And the fish take advantage of that. They, they move out onto the flood terraces for what we call a velocity escape, basically just protection from the, you know, intense flow inside the channel. But they also uh, use it for feed because when all of these areas get flooded, all those um, insects, bugs, get flooded out, including just plain old worms get flooded out. And they change their feeding behavior from being sight predators to being tactile predators. They actually start acting more like a catfish than a trout. Um, so protecting and building these habitats is critically important. And as humans, what we've done, because we've settled in all these areas, these floodplains and terraces were critically important for us to build ranches, farms, uh, you know, cities, and everything else. We've made flows try to stay in their channel, or we've tried to make flows stay in their channels. So my job now is to try to give these fish those features in estuary and floodplain habitats. Yes, agreed. The estuary and floodplain restoration efforts that are ongoing in the area are increasingly interesting, and we're finding that they're critically important to recovering salmon and steelhead. And we'll probably talk about that more in future episodes. So most salmon have federal and state protections under the Endangered Species Act. These protections were created in response to dramatic population declines and the risk of species extinction. Or in California, the term we use is extirpation, where they're regionally extinct. Historical estimates for coho salmon suggest that in the mid-1900s, there were runs of adult salmon that totaled 400,000. 
and that was across California. However, recent monitoring data suggests that only 7,500 have returned, and that was during the winter of 2017. That's about 2% of the historic numbers. Why do you think that is? When we talk about salmon, uh, at least kind of in the near history, folks have always uh, liked to point, it's easier to point fingers at one specific problem, but I have to say that from the uh, bird's eye view, it's, it's all of us. Um, historically, on this coast, uh, land-based problems for salmon have been timber harvesting practices. And I really do have to emphasize that that was kind of in the past. Not that timber harvest practices don't impact fish today, but the practices themselves were much harsher in, in the, quote, good old days than they are now. And that's due to um, heightened uh, regulation, but it's also due to heightened awareness by, by the timber folks themselves. I mean, timber folks want to see salmon here as much as the, as the rest of us do, and I'm firmly convinced of that. So you mentioned historical land uses being a big factor in species decline for salmon and steelhead. And in this area, the dominant land use has been timber extraction. Are there any other land uses that have had potential impacts to salmon and steelhead in our area or in the state overall? Yeah, that's a yeah, really good question. Um, there's vineyards. There's all of us just developing areas, like I said, harbors and, and uh, cities, um, and there's been cannabis as well. And like I said, it's kind of all of us, and I don't, I don't think any of us can claim to be above it. I mean, I have a wood deck, and I drink wine from time to time, so it's really about all of our lifestyles. And how have these land uses resulted in specific stress stressors or factors that are limiting salmon abundance? For example, I'm aware that the development of roads has created both fish passage barriers, but also sources of fine sediment, which impact water quality. Are there other examples of specific factors that are limiting salmon production? Well, besides sediment in streams, as you mentioned, which was really problematic in the past, especially in the logging area from the 50s to the 70s, when building roads and skid trails was much more prevalent than it is today, there was, there's also uh, issues with stream temperatures, as I mentioned before. Um, salmon, they really don't like water much above 60 degrees, so... Um, and in the past, um, the stream carters, the riparian carters, weren't protected. They are now. And so uh, stream temperature in the past was really problematic. And there's this whole other factor, which I don't know that we have much control over, is that salmon spend half their life in the ocean. And ocean conditions are becoming problematic from lack of production due to um, acidification and climate warming. The ocean 
for marine survival for salmon has become less. And on the research uh, projects that I've worked on, we've seen that. So of the 7,500 adult coho salmon that returned to California in 2017, the majority of those coho, uh, about 27%, returned to the Noya River. And then the next largest populations were found in the Trinity River, the South Fork Eel, Pudding Creek, and the Russian River. I find that interesting that two Mendocino coastal streams are included in that list. Why do we see so many salmon returning to the Mendocino coast? Well, like I said, these fish are small stream specialists. And of course, north of the Mendocino-Humboldt County line, there are populations of these fish that do reasonably well but we do have these small streams. And Pudding Creek and the Noyo are notable in that they, they're a clear example of what coho and steelhead like, particularly coho. If anybody's been up on Pudding Creek, uh, you can see that it's, it's almost a swamp. I mean, it's a marsh a lot of the way up, yet it's still got beyond the impacts of that dam there. It's still got, you know, good water quality and there is a lot of structure, meaning wood, in the stream system. And the Noyo is like that too, particularly the South Fork. And I should say that the South Fork, where a lot of these fish are coming from, is uh, managed by uh, JDSF. And they've done a really good job in recent years of restoring the South Fork and its tributaries uh, to uh, much better habitat conditions than, the, than those streams saw in the past. Right, and JDSF refers to Jackson State Demonstration Forest, correct? Yeah, Jackson Demonstration State oh. Forest. I'll, I'll get my acronyms right. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so my next question is about monitoring, and I think this is a good question for you or Elizabeth. Um, since I believe you are self-proclaimed uh, fish squeezers, is that the term? <laughs> um, and the question is, of these population estimates, which seem pretty important when you're trying to gauge how the species are recovering, only 50% of the populations are actually monitored. Why is monitoring so special, and what programs are in place in Mendocino? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, this area on the Mendocino Coast is pretty unique in comparison to the rest of the state in that we have a really long data set um, for monitoring salmon populations on the coast. Um, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife Coastal Monitoring Program has been in place here since about the mid-2000s, and so we have uh, approximately 20 years, I think maybe even a little more, Dave could maybe speak to that, of continuous population level um, data. And that includes both, um, you know, counting adults that are returning to spawn every year in the stream, and also counting juvenile fish that are out migrating back to the ocean in the spring. Um, and we have a lot of life cycle monitoring stations established um, in the area, and there are that run traps that we actually handle the fish and can also collect genetic information. Um, we can collect, you know, individual growth information and get a lot of um, data about what's happening in these particular areas with these fish. So I'm curious, how 
are these population estimates used in a practical sense? Population monitoring or population estimates are really important for us. And I, just to take a step back, and especially because I'm an old guy and I was here before we actually did that, I just want to talk about how we didn't used to know how many fish were around here. We did, when we talked about salmon populations on the Mendocino Coast, when I first got here and first started working here, all we knew was we think the populations used to be a lot better and now we think they stink. But we didn't actually know, we couldn't quantify, if, we couldn't quantify the number of fish in, in any particular stream system. If someone came up to me and said, there were 3,000 coho in the Noyo, or 30,000, or 300,000, there was no reference, there was no way to determine whether those were correct numbers or incorrect numbers. So monitoring is critically important because you need those numbers to determine how well your restoration is working, right? If you go into a stream system, you need to know how many fish that you started with, and then you spend a lot of money doing restoration and hopefully you're going to make more fish, and that's what you need to know. You need to know what you started with and what you're finishing with, and also which streams are weak, right? Where do you direct your restoration dollars? I mean, these, this money doesn't grow on trees. It's really hard to come by, um, so you really need a way to direct your efforts. Right. And then beyond that, I think it's also helpful just to know you know, when you know there are fish in the system, you may know that the habitat is degraded, but it's not completely broken. So it provides a real opportunity to enhance the existing conditions so that it can support more fish. For example, in terms of juvenile monitoring, I was doing a literature search on, you know, historic populations in these stream systems of juveniles which is pretty spotty information. And I came across this report uh, filed by a game warden. Uh, at that point, it was called uh, the Department of Fish and Game in the 1940s. And it was a report on Usal Creek, where I don't know if uh, folks are familiar with uh, Usal Creek, but if you've ever gone up there to camp in summer, the lower area there, the, the flood terrace um, dries up and it strands a lot of fish. And that was occurring even back in the 1940s. And the wardens used to go up there and they would scoop the fish, the juvenile fish, out of these pools that were drying up before the raccoons and other critters got them. And they would transport them down into, in uh, big milk cans, those stainless steel milk cans that they used to have. And they would bring them down to Cottoneva Creek and Pudding Creek. And in one year, in this report I read, they estimated that they moved 60,000 juvenile fish out of, these were just excess fish that were dying, you know, or being stranded in the lower flood terrace. 60,000 of them, they moved out and put into Pudding Creek and Cottoneva. Now, I should say that our monitor our modern monitoring 
Well, I, let me start with, I should say, I should say that our modern monitoring on Pudding Creek only estimates that 25,000 fish come out of Pudding Creek, you know, on an annual basis. I mean, it varies, but the number of fish that they were rescuing out of Usall Creek was three times the amount now that regularly outmigrates from Pudding Creek. And now it's, we don't even know if there's coho in Usall Creek anymore. If you are just tuning in, this is the Ecology Hour, and I'm Anna Halligan. Tonight's show is pre-recorded and includes an interview that I had with fisheries biologist David Wright and Elizabeth Mackey, where they describe the salmon life cycle and the types of habitats that they need. Salmon and trout are characteristic of the Pacific Northwest's cold, productive oceans and rushing streams and rivers. They are adapted for life in dynamic landscapes and in climatic extremes. Salmon thrive through their mobility, moving freely between the ocean and river systems, and they show their extraordinary ability to adapt to local conditions. Despite their adaptability, ease of culture, and economic importance, salmon are in decline in many of their native habitats. So let's return to the interview where I begin to discuss with Elizabeth the challenges associated with monitoring some of these fish. It's also my understanding that steelhead are extremely difficult to monitor and as a result are often not monitored. The populations that are measured are likely only a third of actual steelhead population numbers. Why are steelhead so hard to monitor, and how does a lack of monitoring impact our understanding of their current status? Yeah, good question. Uh, I think Dave and I could both speak pretty well to this with our experience walking the creeks. Um, but they're just logistically a challenge to, to see in the stream um, a lot of times of the year, especially in winter when we're doing what we call ground, ground spawning surveys, and we're, we're looking for those spawning fish digging their nests and breeding. Um, they're really coming into the system when the stream flows during storm events are at their highest. And as we've all seen during those events, you know, the, the, the creeks look like chocolate milk. It's just, it's hard to see. Um, and you really both can't see the stream bottom where they're making their nests, and you also just can't see the fish themselves. They really are um, pretty clever uh, in trying to hide from us during that time. Um, they're also uh, pretty athletic fish in comparison to some of the other species. They really um, they struggle less with swimming up some that, some air spots that may be barriers to other species. And I guess what I mean by that is um, they like you know they're kind of specialists in terms of the type of habitat they use. They they use more of those high gradient streams that have a lot more you know little falls or little cascades. Um, they they have. Uh, and in comparison to coho, who really like that the slow moving water that in low gradient streams to spawn, um, that can make it logistically a challenge to survey for them. Yeah, I'll have to add to what Elizabeth said. And basically, uh, steelhead, from a monitoring perspective, are a real pain in the neck. And believe me, I love the, those fish, but. Trying to count them or, or figure out what they're doing in a stream system at any given time, at any given life history stage, is super difficult. As adults, they come in throughout the whole winter, as opposed to coho that come in, you know, usually as a group during, right after the, you know, 
third or fourth rain of the season, steelhead for basically six months will be, you know, coming in to spawn. Um, and as Elizabeth said, they spawn all over the system. And then if you're monitoring their juvenile population, it's really difficult because they can, some of them can just be rainbow trout, so they don't move around, so you can't really even catch them in traps. Most of our traps are designed to catch them when they're moving out during uh, what we call out-migration or the smolting process. And if the fish aren't actually moving out to sea, then we can't catch them. And then they may decide to do that three or five years later, where with coho, we know they're going to do it within 18 months. So it just adds a lot more variables to the system. And really, it um, points to how resilient they are as, as an animal on this landscape. They're, they're a lot more adaptable than coho. So you're saying steelhead are just as hard to monitor as they are to catch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, without doubt. Yeah. You also mentioned how monitoring, you know, helps dictate where restoration is going to occur. And um, it seems like annually the state of California receives about $14 million of federal funding for Pacific salmon recovery. I'm curious... What kinds of restoration are needed to restore salmon habitat? Well, we've been bouncing kind of around this a little bit, but the thing that these creeks need that um, is probably in least abundance is what we call large wood. Uh, a, a lot of folks refer to it as large woody debris, and that's because of the history of uh, timber harvest practices and the history of conservation practices uh, on the Mendocino landscape. And it was kind of like uh, a double whammy. Initially, in the old style timber harvesting practices, a lot of uh, woody debris, too much wood, excess amounts of wood was put into these stream systems. And it blocked salmon passage. It actually covered areas where juveniles were living over summer. Uh, and it was definitely problematic. People saw that and then decided that we should remove the wood from the creek. Unfortunately, that effort went way too far. Um, I think during the 60s and 70s and 80s, the thought about Salmon Creek is, or salmon streams is that they should look like freeways. Um, but in reality, as a geomorphologist once told me, a properly functioning creek around here should look like a teenager's room. I mean, basically, it's a mess. Um, there's lots of wood in the creek. And think about the size of the trees that fell in the creek in the old days. I mean, you know, 10, 15 foot diameter redwoods um, just, you know, blocking up the stream systems. So that's the number one thing that all of us have been doing, and I know you've been, Anna and Elizabeth, you guys have been doing a ton of that kind of work, and so have I, especially in the past. But there's also um, stuff like fish uh, passage barrier removal, you know, like bad culverts and, and jumps that are too high for fish and various other structures that we've put in creeks that 
in a lot of cases will stop fish from migrating upstream, and in other cases, it'll just kind of cull out a lot of fish. It'll limit the amount of fish that can get upstream. And of course, finally, the issue that um, especially I know TU has been dealing with a lot is sediment in stream systems. In the old days of logging, uh, they built a ton of roads out here. And those roads, they all kind of eroded away into the stream system. Sediment in gravels is really uh, detrimental for spawning salmon because it blocks aeration of the eggs while they're in the gravel nest that these fish built. So I think that's the bulk of you know where, where restoration dollars are being spent. And of course, I should say nowadays we're also discovering that you know, estuary restoration is critically important as well. Do you think these on-the-ground stream restoration projects that are targeting salmon recovery, are they the only way to restore populations, or are there other methods to recover salmon? Yeah, there's also um, a problem that salmon, particularly coho, are experiencing on this coast where they've gone into what we call, uh, another jargon term here, a population vortex. And basically what's that, what that means is that the populations have gotten so small that in stream systems, the fish are like breeding with their brothers and sisters and they're becoming inbred. In other words, a creek like Pudding Creek, you know, in certain years went down to like 25 spawners one year. In one year, there were no spawners during the drought. And so when you have repeated years like that where limited amounts of fish are getting into the system and they're breeding with each other, you're limiting the genetic variability of the whole population. Basically, you're inbreeding the fish and they become less resilient. So there's this uh, solution that folks have been talking about doing and, and in certain areas have been doing it in uh, south of the Golden Gate, which they call conservation-based hatcheries. Now there's a clear distinction between conservation-based hatcheries and normal hatcheries. Normal hatchery, hatcheries were mostly developed to basically put fish on hooks, right? Conservation-based hatcheries are, de are developed such that we can work with geneticists and outbreed the stock to create uh, more genetic uh, variants in the population. But also, conservation-based hatcheries can be used to restock these uh, stream systems uh, where the populations have blinked off, um, but now, because of uh, different habitat conditions or better habitat conditions due to how we're managing these stream systems. Now, these streams have habitat that will support coho and steelhead, but they may no longer have a population in there. And I'm talking about the smaller streams, like going down the coast, like um, Cottoneva, Dehaven, Wages Creek, uh, all those smaller systems used to all have coho, uh, the Wallala, and now they don't. But I think that, and a lot of folks think that they could now support coho again. So 
A conservation-based hatchery would be a way to reintroduce these fish into the system. In fact, isn't it true, this wasn't a conservation-based hatchery, but isn't it true that there were coho taken from Pudding Creek and used in more of a commercial hatchery elsewhere in the U.S.? Yeah, that dam that you see on Pudding Creek when you drive north uh, from Fort Bragg, uh, when you go over the Pudding Creek Highway Bridge, you, if you look to your right, there's a dam there. And there's also a similar structure up on the South Fork of the Noyo in the JDSF property. These structures were called egg collecting stations. Um, they allowed fish to pass, which the dam on Pudding Creek was built also for timber-related uh, stuff, but it it also uh, seconded as an egg collecting station. So the eggs collected at the Noyo and Pudding Creek were actually used to stock the Great Lakes with coho. And in fact, most of the coho uh, in the Great Lakes uh, probably came from Pudding and the Noyo. So you mentioned that a lot of the restoration efforts that are ongoing are focused on removing barriers. So salmon have access to habitat, and then enhancing habitat in the form of floodplain restoration or estuary restoration or adding large wood, and how large wood also addresses this issue of excess sediments being in the system and then being capable of sorting those sediments and um, scouring habitats, like pool habitats, for fish to rear in. I'm curious... Where in our Mendocino coastal streams is the bulk of these kinds of restoration occurring? Uh, good question. Um, really, uh, I mean, all over. I, I don't want to, you know, limit us. We really, you know, definitely, I know Dave and TNC works a lot in the 10-mile watershed. They also work a lot in the Garcia. But really, we've, you know, as a restoration community, have been working in most of the watersheds across the Mendocino coast I talk a lot about the big six for both the population monitoring perspective and also just for a sense of watershed size and where we do our restoration work. And that's a 10 mile, the Noyo, Big River, Albion River, Navarro River, and Garcia River. But we also do work in Usall Creek. Uh, one thing I'd like to note about the areas that we're doing restoration on the Mendocino Coast is in the last 15 or 20 years, how helpful timber companies have been in doing the, you know, these restorations. I mean, most of these creeks are owned by timber companies, and they've been, I can say all of them have been nothing but cooperative about allowing us and even contributing resources to doing, you know, large wood treatments of streams and also uh, road removals of you know, road abandonments of roads that they no longer need. I mean, this really has been kind of a region-wide effort with, you know, folks from all sides participating. That's a really good point, Dave. And I'd like to add to that, that we, we have this great opportunity here on the coast that, for instance, the timber companies own such large tracts of contiguous land, and particularly, a lot of times, whole watersheds uh, are on their property, and that gives us the opportunity to really approach restoration from a whole watershed perspective, and it helps us to be more effective. That's a good point, because there is some research that indicates that in order to truly be effective at restoration, you have to treat approximately 80% of the watershed area. 
And in addition to timber companies, there's also um, state agencies that have inherited old timber lands and now manage them. You mentioned Jackson State, which is uh, the Department of Fire and Forestry, um, but as well as state parks in our area, which both of those landowners provide similar opportunities and have been really essential in this effort to recover salmon here. You know, I should also mention, or I shouldn't forget to mention, that the vineyards, especially on the Navarro, have been really helpful recently, uh, working with TNC to develop, you know, alternate uh, ways to divert, you know, uh, irrigation water and, you know, that kind of thing to help the Navarro as well. So you mentioned stream flow conservation, and I find that a particularly interesting part of restoration. Can you elaborate? Are there any examples of other kinds of stream flow restoration that are occurring on the Mendocino Coast? Sure. Um, actually, the act of putting large wood in the stream system is a way to conserve water, especially during summer. If you think about you know, we go through an annual drought every summer and how tiny these creeks get. Large wood in streams acts as a series of check dams. It slows the flow. It's what um, some folks refer to as a roughness element. And that's critically important for um, storing uh, water in the stream systems uh, through the summer for these fish, and that's their weakest link, is, is the summer stream flow. If you think about it, as I said before, um, the size of the logs that used to be in these streams was enormous, and they basically made these huge ponds. If you go up to places that have never been logged, like Prairie Creek in Humboldt County or Little Lost Man Creek, these huge trees fall in the creek and they make these giant um, avulsions and, and side channels and ponds and uh, areas that these fish have adapted to use over hundreds of thousands of years. Right. And, you know, another thing that I think we've observed regarding the current hydrology of watersheds and the historic hydrology of watersheds, in addition to this lack of wood that holds water, is that with the development of roads, we've essentially created quick draining watersheds. We've kind of cut through the natural stream systems and then expedited the amount of water that runs off. And then having a lack of wood in stream to collect that runoff creates a situation where we're unable then to retain water in stream for fish for the longest period of time of their use, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right, Anna. Um, humans just want the water to stay in the creek. I mean, that's what we've done since, well, at least Europeans have done that since we got on this continent. And it's a problem for fish, and especially in areas like this where we have a summer drought. Um, we want to do the opposite. We want to slow down the flow, we want to store the water, and we want to get it up onto the flood terrace, not only for the fish, but because it recharges the aquifers. So I'm curious, 
when you're developing restoration projects um, and you're working with these two species, coho and steelhead, that are related but have different life histories, do you take a different approach on which types of restoration you implement for each species? Well, not really so much. It seems like the, the things that we do uh, benefits both species. But I should say that the, both the two species that we're talking about are highly competitive, and they've actually evolved ways that they deal with this competition. And I'm talking about juveniles in the stream system fighting for food and space and stuff like that. Steelhead, as we've probably said a hundred times already, are much more athletic than coho. Um, but the way that coho have evolved to deal with this is that they spawn much earlier than steelhead in these stream systems. They're typically, they like to spawn as close to Thanksgiving as the rains allow. And what that does, and steelhead uh, like to spawn after Christmas, uh, usually January, February, March is the, you know, when the bulk of the fish come in. And what that does is it allows the juveniles of coho to hatch and grow for a while before the juveniles of uh, steelhead do. And as such, then the, ju the juvenile coho are bigger than, than the steelhead juveniles, and they're able to kind of hold their own with, with the steelhead. Otherwise, uh, they'd be outcompeted by steelhead. Yeah, that's a really good point, Dave. Um, and to add to that, uh, you know, additionally, coho, in comparison to steelhead, are genetically predis predisposed to, you know, die after they spawn. Um, and so they get kind of one chance to make it or break it, right? Um, but steelhead, on the other hand, really, um, they, they can go out to the ocean and return to spawn multiple times in their life history. Uh, I think they've been observed um, in some places in the Pacific Northwest as doing that as many as seven times in their life, in life cycle. Yeah, uh, I worked on, for many years, we worked on the Pudding Creek Dam on a monitoring project, and we would count coho and steelhead coming through the fish ladder there, and we would tag the fish after they went through the ladder, and these are tags that were visible, you know, you could you could see it from just handling the fish. You could even see them in the creek. And one year we um, caught a steelhead coming up the ladder and had a tag on it and we looked it up and we had caught that fish at the ladder on the exact same day a year before, which probably was a coincidence, but um, <laughs> it was pretty cool to, um, to see. Yeah, that's really interesting. So Peter Moyle is a California-renowned fisheries biologist with the Center of Watershed Sciences at UC Davis, and he states that at the current rate, California stands to lose 45% of its remaining native salmon populations in the next 50 years unless significant actions are taken to stem the decline. Do you have hope that salmon populations can be recovered on the Mendocino Coast, and what will it take? I do have hope. Uh, we have a community and, you know, the, the residents here like salmon. And we have big swaths of open land 
um, where the landowners are cooperative, um, and we have the kind of conditions that um, can make fish. Do I think that we will ever get to the populations that occurred here before Europeans got here? Probably not. But I think that we can get a healthy, self-sustaining population going here um, without breaking the bank. There's even some evidence in the area that recovery is working. In fact, in the Noyo River, in, I believe, 2015, the return of adult salmon actually met its recovery target. Can you talk a little bit about recovery targets and how population monitoring is related to that? Yeah. Um, recovery targets were established by the National Marine Fishery Service that we all call NIMPS, another acronym. Um, and basically, through a series of models, they uh, developed the number of fish it would take in each stream system up here for the fish to be self-sustaining over the long term. And I think in the Noyo, it was, catch me if I'm wrong here, Anna, 2,700 fish uh, a year? Uh, it's actually 4,000. Okay, 4,000. Well, anyhow, the Noyo did that one year. Um, a little over 5,000. Yeah. And what year was that, again? Remind I me. I think it was 2015, but don't, right. don't hold me yeah. to that number. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, um, it was an enormous success, and I should say that, especially considering the history of the Noyo population, which had been supplemented by a hatchery for years, um, Noyo was down to almost nothing about 10 or 15 years ago, and in fact... Pudding Creek, which is about one-sixth the drainage area, I mean, Pudding Creek is a tiny creek, would outproduce out the, uh, the Noyo every year. Um, and I should say that uh, Pudding Creek hit its, I think, its uh, recovery number is 1,800 fish, and it hit that one year as well. So those two creeks are kind of our stellar creeks, and 10 Mile does pretty well also, I think, I know that 10 mile, the recovery target is 3,200, and we've been hovering around 1,500 fish in the last few years. So we're about halfway there. We're getting there. Yeah, and in the context of the rest of the state, those numbers really are promising. So I do think it speaks very highly for the potential to recover salmon here. Yeah, and one of the problems that we're having is not so much the numbers and I'm going to, once again, backstep here a little bit. When, when you evaluate how well a population is doing, just the number itself is not the only um, variable that you look at. The other thing that you look at is the um, spatial, what they call the spatial structure. In other words, where are the fish, right? And that's one of the um, problems we're having is that the fish aren't well distributed anymore across the Mendocino Coast. In the old days, probably in the 1940s, there were coho almost in every single stream on Mendocino County. I mean, you know, Usol, Garcia, uh, Gualala, um, I don't think the Gualala's on the Men 
Mendocino Coast, is it? Oh, yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, Albion, you know, all those creeks, especially the small ones that a lot of them don't have uh, fish anymore, like Usol, maybe Cotneva, Dehaven, they don't have, I should say, coho anymore. Um, they all used to have them. And so that's one of the problems these fish are having is that there's not enough of them to encourage them to disperse into these smaller watersheds. And so that's why we get back to this whole thing of having a conservation-based hatchery such that we can kind of take that over for them. Because if we're waiting for them to recolonize a lot of these creeks, um, it may be too late. And that concludes my 2019 interview with David Wright and Elizabeth Mackey about salmon populations on the Mendocino Coast. If you are interested in learning more about salmon population monitoring in California, check out the website State of the Salmon, which can be found at casalmon.org. Thanks for tuning in to Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. We stream live at kzyx.org and also can be found on Facebook. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.